Hi, uh, welcome to the latest episode of the Big Football Podcast. Hosting as always, my name's Dan, and I'm joined this evening by Paul. Good evening, Dan. And Calm. Good evening. How are you, gents? Yeah, yeah, not too bad, thanks. Not too bad. Yeah, uh, as, as you both know, tough week in my house. Uh, I lost my dad, Stephen, who none of you listening will probably know. Um, but without my dad, um, who, who died very suddenly on Thursday, uh, I wouldn't be sat here talking about football because he got me into football and he never put any pressure on me to like football, despite the fact he used to follow Liverpool everywhere in the 70s and the 80s until I was born. And then my mum basically said, it's it's me or the football. Uh, <laughs> and, and dad very wisely chose um, chose my mum to, to games in the 90s. And on the 30th of August, 1995, uh, I had the indignity of seeing my first Liverpool goal in the flesh score by Neil Ruddock. Um, as Liverpool uh, beat QPR 1-0 and my dad took me. <laughs> so wherever you are, Dad, thank you. Uh, Paul, um, I seem to say this all the time on this podcast. Uh, how, how long has Mikel Arteta got before time's up? I, I do, there's mitigating circumstances and we'll come on to those, but even with Arsenal's full team available, I, I think Chelsea would have outmuscled them the way they did anyway. Oh yeah, I, I mean we were completely outclassed on um, Sunday by Chelsea, um, and I, I, you know that's not a surprise. Chelsea are a very good team. Clearly, they're you know they're the champions of Europe for a reason. They've been in very good form since basically since the moment Tuchel arrived, isn't it? Um, shortly after we we sort of played him off the pitch at the Emirates last Christmas, and, and Lampard got his marching orders within a couple of weeks, and and Tuchel's arrived, and they've taken off, and they, they, the gap between the two teams was was very evident on. Um, on Sunday, I thought Chelsea were, were comfortably the better side, never got out of second gear in the second half. Arsenal created one chance, which was the Rob Holding header. He, he should have scored. It was a good chance halfway through the second half. And who knows if you get back to 2-1, but I, you'd have been relying on Chelsea just panicking a little bit because um, when they got it down and, and played, they were they were just better than us. Uh, I think the worry for Arsenal, obviously, as you say, there's extenuating circumstances. Um They've had awful luck with with COVID already this season. They were without, you know, their two first choice centre halves. Parties already missing in midfield. You know, Aubameyang clearly wasn't 100 when he came on in the second half. Lacazette's still out. Saka doesn't look as he, though he's quite to his best yet. Obviously, Odegaard's not yet registered. Thing. Um, so <laughs> no, I, like there are a theme in the two games, Chelsea and Brentford is. There's a real lack of intensity and energy in Arsenal's play, and I think that's that's the the one thing that he injected, which had kind of gone missing at the end under under Unai Emery was was and an, you know Arsenal stopped and they played with with a bit more about them. At the moment, there's no there's no intensity and no energy. I think that more than anything else is is going to put big pressure on him um we're at and then we're at uh at manchester city at the weekend nobody expects arsenal to get anything out of that game i think international break i think they played norwich and then burnley and then tottenham um they certainly need at least a couple of wins out of those games to keep him in his job i think uh, I will say what I've said every time we've had this conversation. I think Arsenal are desperate not to sack him. They're really, really desperate to stick with Arteta and to give him every opportunity. Um, 
But if those two games against, I mean, Norwich at home should be the perfect game international break because, uh, you know, they, they, they look worse to me than the last time they were in the Premier League, if I'm being completely honest. Uh, yeah, they've gone backwards, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, they do a little bit to me, and, and and okay, they've had a difficult start. They've played Liverpool and Man City, so so fair enough. But they they don't look as though uh, they're going to make a huge fist of of a survival um, challenge. So that's the sort of game Arsenal really have to win, and and not just scrape a one nil. I think they have to they have to have a sort of morale boosting win in that game where they actually play well and and things look as though they're on the up. Uh, I, I, I sort of I reflecting on this yesterday, and I, if you remember, sort of this time last year, after Arsenal went and won at Old Trafford and United had had a poor start, we were looking at Solskjaer and saying he's 18 months into the job. Um, you know, he now has to start getting results, or else the pressure is going to come. You know, within four or five games, uh, and and at that time, United were coming into a run of fixtures that you thought, well, they could put a run together here. And they did, and and in the end, you know, Sol- Solskjaer had a, a good season last season. I think uh, I expect Manchester United to go well this year. It, it's kind of at that point for for Arteta now. He's he's eighteen months into the job, similar as Solskjaer was then. It's kind of sinks when you've had eighteen months at Arsenal or eighteen months at Manchester United. You've been backed in the transfer market. Uh, Arteta spent. £140 million this summer. I think we've brought 35 back in. So it's a big net spend. We've spent 40 or 50 million pound net last summer. Um, so, you know, w- when you've spent over £150 million net in two summer transfer windows as the Arsenal manager, it's realistic for people to say, well, now you've got to, now you've got to show some real progress. Um, so I, I think the next... Not Manchester City. That's a bit of a free hit on Sunday, to be honest. Um, and I, I'd like to see them go there and play like that and play as though they're not scared and just go and sort of enjoy it a little bit because as much as confidence mustn't, mustn't be great at the moment, that is a game where they can just go and play their football and not worry too much about the result. Um, but then those games after the international break, particularly you know Norwich at home, Burnley away, and then the last, the last game you really want, if you've not got results in those two, is to be playing North London derby at the Emirates. Because if if Spurs go one 0 up in that game, and you've maybe only drawn with Norwich and drawn with Burnley, um, the atmosphere will turn very, very quickly. I think. Uh, so my my short answer, Dan, is to make sure he's still in his job um, by the sort of second international break of the season. Uh, he probably needs at least two wins out of those three games that immediately follow the first international break of the season. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair a fair summary, Paul. And you know, particularly leading up to that uh, that that derby game, um, if you don't, I mean, you know, you'd think that Norwich and Burnley, even with you know the sort of issues you've had with your start, you'd, you'd be good enough in those games. But yeah, going into that derby, you don't want that to be the you know the moment, if you like, as you said, if you go down in that game, then. Uh, the knives will be out, and I think the, you know, you talk about the the fact that he's, you know, obviously there's players out, and you you know you've had a, a toughish start, um, but I think it's that he doesn't have a lot of stock already with perhaps a lot of the you know the sort of match going fans if you like, and obviously they're now present and available, um, so I think there's obviously the more patient fans like yourself who've you know been a bit more pragmatic about it, but there have been a lot of you know vocal. 
uh, vocal fans, shall we say, over the last year who pro- probably would have sacked him a year ago, right? In that period of last autumn when we had this conversation um, where we were talking about Lampard, Solskjaer and Arteta. Um, and I think, you know, that there's there's people who probably would have had him gone by November last year. He is still there because you're right. I don't think Arsenal particularly, those, those fans are going to be in paying the money, going to the stadium and, and they'll, they'll make their voice heard one way or another. Right. And if they don't like what they're seeing, then that, that will start to force the, the board's hand. I think, you know, a lot of clubs have sort of had it lucky that they can ride out these bad patches during COVID where there haven't been the fans there. So it's been easier to keep, to, to stick with people. Um, it's, it's not going and I wonder a little bit, so thinking back to the kind of the, the, the dark days at the end of the Emery reign, um, like when, it, when Arteta had that bad period last autumn where we couldn't really buy a result for, for about six weeks in the run-up to Christmas, that all changed, ironically enough, given the result of the weekend when we, when we beat Chelsea on, on Boxing Day. Um, when I think back to that period, the fact that there were no fans in the stadium meant that Arteta never really panicked. And he kind of was able to just keep methodically working his way through it. And eventually the form turned around. When I think back to what happened at the end under Emery, when the results started to go against him and there were fans in the stadium and the atmosphere was toxic, he completely lost his, lost his mind. Emery. He's, Unai Emery is not a terrible football manager, but in those last four or five weeks at Arsenal, he looked it. He was playing three or four formations a game. He was making the most bizarre substitutions you've ever seen. We were doing some bonkers things at set pieces that he you know, maybe got off FIFA 95 or something. Um, and, and it was because the pressure was building. Interesting to see how Arteta reacts because you're right. You know, the, the, it's very, very different going through a, a bad trot when, when there's fans in the stands. And, and the other thing I think, like, he would get more leeway if it wasn't so insipid. Like, if we'd lost to Chelsea 3-1 in a kind of, you know, the way Wenger used to lose to Chelsea at times in a game where we'd be 100 mile an hour and they'd just pick us off on the counter-attack a couple of times because they were cleverer than we were. I think people would be less frustrated. I think the really frustrating thing from the two games has been we've, you know, people talked about just being bullied at, at, at um Brentford and there was certainly an element of that particularly on the second goal but we were just outworked and outrun and I think we were by Chelsea again on on um, Sunday so you know a team that's less talented than us has worked harder than us and a team that's more talented than us has worked harder than us and eventually you know eventually that's that's going to lead to to bad outcomes and, and at the moment that's definitely what's happening. We kind of mentioned extenuating circumstances. Well, I did <laughs> extenuating circumstances earlier on, and it's no, it's no secret that Arsenal have a COVID problem. With that being said, I, I, I kind of wonder, like, why weren't those games cancelled? Because to, to me, they, they should have been postponed. And the Brentford game, certainly, if that's not the opening night of the season, it's live. Um, I, I think that Arsenal probably get that game abandoned and rightly so yeah i i from what i know of people i've spoken to who you know i I know someone who's connected with the club through the academy um arsenal felt that the protocols that the premier league have for postponing games were met last thursday night when they suddenly realized so 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 arsenal had a COVID problem about four or five weeks ago before they were due to go to the u.s on tour 
and they ended up pulling out of that tour as, as a result because they, they hadn't managed to trace exactly where it had gone in the camp. They obviously thought they'd got it sorted, but then Aubameyang and, and Lacazette went down on went down ill on the, the Wednesday and Thursday, I think, the week before the, the Brentford game. On the Thursday night, Arsenal felt they were at the point, as I understand it, where um, the, the sort of protocol for the Premier League requires the game to be postponed because they were still in the process of contact tracing and couldn't confidently say that nobody who was going to be involved in the game on Friday, both in playing staff and, you know, coaching support staff, hadn't been exposed. Now, um, it seems that the Premier League basically just, you know, wasn't listening at that point. Uh, I think you're right, Dan, that their view was that their you know, marquee opening night was going to go ahead, whether whether um, whether there was a COVID issue or not. But it's clearly caused a problem that's gone on into this week, and it, it is not an excuse. I want to make that very very clear for the way Arsenal have played in the two games, not at all. But um, but clearly the issue is still there in the camp because Ben White's gone down with COVID this week, and that's why he missed the Chelsea game. So uh, I don't I, I I don't know that the same situation occurred. This week, I told that in, in the run-up to the Chelsea game, I think they knew about Ben White further in advance than the news broke, and so were able to kind of take appropriate steps. But my understanding is last week, before the Brentford game, Arsenal felt that the issue arose significantly late in the day, and they weren't in a position to guarantee um, that all that contact tracing had been done. Uh, and, and their belief was that that would trigger the, the protocol. But... Um, Again, uh, the Premier League, you know, and they have to protect their interests as well. But it, it, the point for me is, I think an announcement yesterday as well, that 16 players have tested positive. They weren't named. There have been 16 more positive tests. And I, I just wonder, you know, what, what is the Premier, Premier League going to do? Because last season, we managed to get through the season without lots and lots of COVID outbreaks. We had some, particularly around Christmas time. You'll remember some games were moved. But we managed to get through without a lot of them because the players weren't really mixing outside of football. We spent a lot of last season in lockdown as a country. Um, players, you know, weren't mixing with fans and, and other people in stadiums. Uh, the, the atmosphere was very controlled. Uh, and we managed to get away without too many cases cropping up during the season. I, I do worry, what, what happens if a club has five, six, seven players go down two days before the game. Is the Premier League still going to say you've got to play? Um, I think it bears watching because I'm not actually great handle at the moment on on the way that we're going to try and get this season played and get it played successfully while still managing the issue that's still there. Yeah. Oh, go on, Dan. No, I was just going to say, I hope the, the right honourable gentleman, the member for the Emirates Stadium, isn't suggesting that the government have just completely decided that COVID no longer exists. <laughs> that was that was more or less um, my line anyway, Dan, to be honest. So you've uh, literally taken my breath away there. But, Sorry, Cam. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, I mean, that, that, I think that's the point, isn't it? That, you know, are the, you know, the Premier League and the FA essentially almost following the government guidelines of, hey, COVID something we had last year. We don't have to worry about it anymore. Like, don't worry if half your team goes down. Play play like it doesn't exist. And, and you know, that's kind of what the government guidance is now for, for everyone in other walks of life. So it's almost as if they're using that as an excuse to just, you know, brush it under the carpet, pretend it's not there and, and carry on. But, 
you know, it's interesting the point you you mentioned around the Premier League protecting their interest, Paul. But surely having these protocols does protect their interest because because of, of what you just said. Like, what happens if there is an outbreak and then loads of players can't play, and then that does affect their their interest, if you like, because no one wants to watch, you know, Liverpool reserves v Man City reserves. You know what I mean? Like, like it does actually protect their longer term interests if if there is a you know more more protocols in place to to stop it from from spreading because now we're in this sort of regular cycle where teams are going to be playing each other each week and as you mentioned you know more fans around and all that kind of stuff all it takes is you know a, a group of players who might have it in one team <laughs> play it to another who then play away at another team the next week and so on it could very easily you know spread through uh you know all the premier league clubs you know without too much difficulty yeah and uh, you know again I, I don't want to make this kind of sort of a, a covid podcast but the issue that I think Steve Bruce raised last week, and I think Pep talked about it as well in terms of um, the number of players that are still not vaccinated and um, are not necessarily showing any desire to get vaccinated. I don't want to turn this into an anti-vaxxer issue, not at all. <laughs> but um, but clearly there is still an issue with... We've taken footballers out of this controlled environment and put them back in an environment, in a lot of cases, without the you know, the protection, whatever you think of it, that the vaccination provides. Um, I do think we risk kind of, you know, spreads. We've had the news just literally before we started recording this this podcast tonight that the Premier League clubs have said that any international players going to games in red list countries will not be released. Um, presumably that's because the Premier League uh, haven't been able to convince the government that those players should then get an exemption when they come back into the country. Uh, oh but, dear, uh, how sad, never mind Well now, I know you won't be sad to see a few international football matches go by the wayside, Dan I, um, I can think of a tournament as well that's called the African <laughs> Cup of Nations yeah. it, Although it would be funny, wouldn't it, if you ended up you know, with a, an international fixture and it, Certainly for the smaller countries who maybe haven't got a huge pool to pick from You, you could literally end up with people getting a cap from the country who look like Benson and Hedges out of the uh, Mike Bassett film um, <laughs> because they're the only people left to qualify. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think this, you know, the COVID issue has not gone away. Uh, fingers crossed we're through the worst of it as a country, as a, as a planet, but it's not gone away. And the Premier League and FIFA and UEFA and the international governing bodies are going to have to be very vigilant on how we manage this for certainly the duration of this football season and whether it's international games, whether it's when Europe kicks in after the international break, whether it's managing the protocols in the Premier League. Um, I think it is going to be an issue as we go on that we're going to have teams that are two or three players because um, they've tested positive and, and what that means for the competitive balance of competitions and everything else um, will obviously come out in the wash, but it, it definitely is one to keep an eye on. Yeah, it, it's not going away, despite what what governments around the world are saying. There is an active like COVID is going to be active for a while. Um, I don't ever think we'll see kind of the the restrictions we had to live with last year again, uh, because as has already said, it, uh, COVID has been scrapped; it doesn't exist anymore. Um, but as I, I think, what, what surprises me is I, I've not read anything, Paul, about. Um, a widespread outbreak in the lower leagues and the, the lower leagues to me is where I would expect the outbreaks to occur because like rugby league, lower league footballers do not live in this 
this kind of socio-media bubble. Um, like the, the normal people they go to, uh, to Aldi and Lidl and Tesco, and if they're really affluent, Waitrose or perhaps Ocado. Um, but the, the point is, you know, like these people go out and mix like we do when, like when we go shopping. So I, I'm surprised it's not really seen to be running through the, the lower leagues yet, but that's where it's going to happen first, you would think, if there is a massive COVID problem in football again. Yeah, I don't know how frequently lower league players have been tested. I don't know what the what the protocols are. And certainly, I don't know whether you're talking the lower football leagues or the or the kind of the top of the non-league game. But I, in both of those circumstances, I don't know how frequently players have been tested. Um, but it, but maybe what you're seeing is we're fine. It's the old Donald Trump thing, isn't it? If you if you do more tests, you find more cases. And <laughs> and in the in the in the, he wanted to stop testing, if you can remember, because he was worried it was causing too many positives. Uh, no, 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 the positives will be there anyway, Donald. That's the way it works. Uh, I wonder if there's a bit of that in the Premier League, that they are testing their players so frequently that they're picking things up, even where players are reasonably asymptomatic. I might be completely wrong, and it sounds as though Lacazette actually has had a pretty bad bout of it. Um, and, you know, there's some speculation he, he might not even be ready to go next week. Uh, so he's clearly had a, a rough time, and we know about Carl Darlow, um, the Newcastle goalkeeper who, you know, lost a significant amount of weight and was hospitalised and was in a really bad way for a few days. So uh, who knows? But uh, it's right, Dan, that the lower league players probably more naturally um, live their lives in a in a, a way more equivalent to you and I rather than the, the Premier League millionaires. That's it, yeah, and and that's why I think rugby league gets kind of, and, and I know I always come back to rugby league. It's the new um, right honourable gentleman, the member for Mansfield, if you remember the the the, the run we had last season. Um, it, yeah, like rugby league has had this problem, and there's been a lot of um, postponement. Some of those games have finished twenty four nil. Some of those games have been rearranged. Um, so yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see, but I, I have to point out, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll both agree with me that the Premier League and the Football League did a fantastic job last season of getting the season completed with relatively minimal outbreaks and minimal, like playing eight games in five days at the end of the season. Yeah, they did, and and you know, obviously, we all want to get get the seasons done and, and and make sure that they can be, be run properly. Uh, I think it's just that the fact that we're trying to get back to life as normal now, while we're still living with this, with this virus around, albeit hopefully not, not as, um, not as widespread as, as previously means that there is going to be additional challenges that just weren't there last year. When, when the only people in football stadiums were the people who were there to play and participate in the game. So um, yeah, it, it, no easy answer. I'm not trying to tell the Premier League and, and the Football League how to how to do their jobs at all, but I, I think it's something that we will regrettably have to come back to because we'd all love to, you know, just be talking about how good West Ham were last night and you know where Leicester might finish this season and all that sort of stuff. But I think in the long term, this is going to have an impact on the season. Yeah, I, I, I think. You know, just just on that point, I think that there'll always be that suspicion, or there probably already is that suspicion of, is it too much too soon? You know, in terms of we've gone from no fans, more or less, to full fans. You know, I think like Germany, they're still only at like you know half capacity or whatever, taking a more cautious approach. We've just kind of just flipped it and said, right, 
every, everyone in and I think that'll be the thing does it come back to yeah have we just gone to sort of full you know full stadiums and back to normal you know a, a bit a bit too quickly and you know time, time will tell how much of a problem that actually causes I don't think any mass outbreaks have been linked to sporting events, though, have this from the from the the, the, the test kind of events. But um, that's probably before the Delta variant got its um, its talons in. Shall we um, talk about something else, or was there something else we wanted to say about the COVID cast? No, <laughs> let's let's move back to football, Dan. Yeah, yeah. So, something only slightly more appealing than COVID. Um, playing Burnley. <laughs> um, I, I, I went to the game, and, and this is no disrespect to Burnley. But Burnley play how Burnley play. You know what you're going to get. Sean Dice is very good at maximising his resources. Um, and I indeed, thought, in the first half, I thought they were slightly unlucky to be behind. They were, yeah. No, I, I, I don't share this widespread optimism about how Liverpool played on on Saturday. Personally, I thought we actually rode our luck a little bit at nil nil. Yeah, um, I, I thought I thought Liverpool dominated the second half. Don't get me wrong; they came out and they they got straight on the front foot and and controlled the second half. But I thought for the first forty five minutes, Burnley were you know giving as good as they got in that game, and it was just the quality that Liverpool have in the final third that was the difference. Yeah, exactly. We've got Yota the slaughter. Um, they've got the, they've got the Ashley. I'm the editing Ashley that Barnes. out, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> They've got that Ashley Barnes jabroni who went wheeling off to celebrate in front of the cop despite being four yards offside. I don't know why. Can't figure that out. But what what, what I was getting at, and again, this is no disrespect to Burnley or Sean Dyche. You know what you're getting with them. They don't apologise for it, and nor should they. Uh, considering Mr Dean was the referee, and I don't know why he suddenly started turning up at Anfield, um, I, I noticed that the game was allowed to flow. I didn't always agree with the decisions that were being made, but it was very consistent. Um, I think that there was too much of, of Ashley Barnes having either Joel Matip or Virgil van Dijk in the TAS mission, but that, was, you know, that, that that approach was allowed all game, and it wasn't just Burnley. Liverpool were, were, were leaving it in as well. There was a particularly crunching tackle on Harvey Elliott, which I had no problem with. It was a, you know, a strong tackle, got the ball was won. Um, and... Jürgen wasn't too happy after the game and his comments were, were mirrored by um, by Solskjaer the, the day after. Um, I think he had problems with Southampton's goal standing. I think he could have thought that Jack Stevens had fouled, I think, Fernandez in the build-up. Yeah, it was um, Fernandez. So I, I, am I imagining it or, or do we have a more kind of open season this season? So I, I think from what I understand, if we just pick up on the, the Solskjaer point, he... he my understanding is, and I, I'm saying this having had very, very limited to, to, to nil uh, viewing experience of the matches this weekend, unfortunately, because I've had, had things on. But my understanding is that he thought it was a foul in the build-up, and actually he's not the only one that thought that. Fine. But I think it sounds to me a little bit like he's conflating a referee missing something slash making an error, which happens all the time, versus this new trend of this season of more open fluid play and, and refs letting the game go. So I think they're, you know, not getting a decision is something that's ha- happened since the dawn of football or, or since it, yeah. you know, since referees uh, uh, have been involved in, in the game. So I, I think that can happen all the time. I think he's lumping it in with, you know, he's, he's seen a bandwagon and he's sort of jumped on it a little bit. 
Um, so, I mean, like I say, I can't speak too much without having really, you know, really seen them properly. So I'll let you jump in, Paul. But that, that's the sort of, from what I sense, he's sort of spotted an opportunity to kind of latch on to something, particularly given the game was the day after the Liverpool game and Klopp had already said his piece on it. I think, um, you know, it, it's the sort of uh, the big four trying to sort of close ranks a little bit. Um you know, when actually I think most people seem to actually be, in, you know, as you've said, Dan, the free-flowing football is, is kind of what we want to see. Um, so I think they're just trying to protect their own interests more than anything. But I'll, I'll, let, you, I'll let you jump in, Paul. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think there is some, um, you know, the big clubs want want, it, want to make it more difficult for the, the smaller teams to play in a kind of, you know, more aggressive style, if that's the right, right phrase, because, it, you know, it, the more open the game is, the, the theory goes, then the, the better players have more space to shine. And, and I think that's definitely there's an element of that in Klopp's uh, comments. I don't think he's ever been the biggest fan of the way Burnley play. I don't think that's new for this season. Um, <laughs> I think Jürgen Klopp's views on Burnley are quite well known. Um, <laughs> similarly, uh, you know, Solskjaer uh, might have had his reasons for wanting to deflect on um, Sunday because... Uh, he obviously heard me tip United for the title last weekend, and then um, it wasn't <laughs> the most inspiring performance. So uh, I, I think he had a sort of bit of a reason to want to make the the narrative after the game about refereeing rather than anything else. That said, I did think it was a foul on, on Fernandez, but there we go. Um, I think generally, yes, referees are letting things go. I think we played such sanitised football last year and we talked about it at times with, with no fans and no atmosphere and everyone passing it sideways a million times. If we get a bit of 1990s Premier League and there's a few full bloody tackles and the, and the pace of games goes up, then I think fans will probably accept that. And um, certainly the first weekend, I, I thought there were a lot of really, really good games. Um uh, maybe not quite uh, as many that got you off the edge of your seat this weekend, albeit I'm already mentioned. I thought West Ham were very good last night. So, uh, yeah, I, I think a little bit of, of sour grapes maybe from Solskjaer and, um, and Klopp, even though Liverpool won that game. Uh, and I certainly think that, that Burnley, are, they're not going to change the way they play because it's the only thing keeping them in the Premier League, frankly, is the fact that they, they have a system and they have a style and they and they all buy into it and they work the socks off. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it will come up every now and again. Um, it used to come up quite a lot with Arsenal when we were a better team uh, and, and teams would try and play in a, in a more physical style. Um, it, there is always a place in the game for a balance of... of approaches and while most fans I think prefer a team that gets it down and tries to play and tries to be free-flowing and positive and front-footed football would be boring if every team tried to play like Pep Guardiola plays I really think that I think you need that contrast of styles you need the ability for teams to approach games in different ways that's part of what makes it fascinating it's part of what makes it interesting you know the tactical back and forth and the and the physical versus the technical it, it's part of why it's the most popular sport in the world so i would hate to get to a point where it's so sanitized that everyone has to play like like man city or try and play like man city because it's one thing doing it when you've got kevin de bruyne in central midfield and it's another when you've got granite Xhaka. so um you know I, I don't think anyone would want to see every team in the premier league just trying to be a pale imitation of Manchester City. 
Um, I've got no problem with the way Burnley played. Were there a couple of challenges that maybe Liverpool should have got fouls for? Yeah, probably. But a bit like Khan said on the on the Fernandez thing. Well, that's always been the way in football. And you know that's not changed. I think the other thing that does just bear mention while we're on refereeing is, um, I've been impressed through two weeks with the way they've used VAR. They've been far less intrusive. Um, they've checked uh, more quickly. They've overruled fewer things. They've got involved uh, less often. They've asked referees to go and look at monitors um, less frequently. So. I, I think so far so good for me on VAR. I wanted it to be a real tool of last resort, genuinely sort of exceptional circumstances, clear and obvious mistake. Um, and I think the way they've used it through two weeks is more what I would like compared to the last two seasons. It, it feels like they've, they've taken the sort of best practice from the Euros and sort of, you know, complete with some of the changes that, that you, you very kindly took us through <laughs> last week, Paul, and, and together they've, they've sort of applied, you know, they seem to be applying it more sensibly. Um, and I think, you know, generally the, the feeling seems to be that's, that's, that's very welcome because that's kind of what people envisage VAR being when it was talked about being introduced, you know, three years ago or whatever. And after a couple of seasons of struggling with it, it, it feels like, you know, I mean, it's very early days, but it, it feels like now with, directives given over the summer um and an exemplary use of it during the euros yeah. as well that that now it's sort of started to land and and it's been used in in what we all probably consider the the right way or the most sensible way which is which is great to see yeah and i, I think the the saka one on, against chelsea on on sunday i think last year they'd have overturned that and given arsenal a penalty now i think you can see why you might do that but it was not by anyone's imagination a clear and obvious mistake and i'm very happy with those decisions staying on the field and staying in the in the you know auspices of the referee if you like and i think they sort of took a a 15 second stop the game and have a quick check on it on uh var and then the referee blew his whistle said i'm sticking with my first decision it's a corner let's get on with it and you know i think the, the game will be better for that We've mentioned um, Jürgen not being a big fan of, of Burnley, but um, I thought he spoke brilliantly this week about um, homophobia in football. And you, you picked up on this, Paul. I think he did a, an absolutely superb job of going over through the ridiculousness at Norwich last weekend. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't always agree with Jurgen Klopp on everything he says um, in terms of, you know, again, some of his comments about Burnley. I think at times he, he gets himself a little bit carried away in, in technical areas in a way that I think is a bit antagonistic to, to other managers that he he should should know better. And I think he probably knows that himself and he, he quite often ends up apologising for himself after the event. But I think on these kind of, you know, these issues where football and society kind of merge into one, He's really picked up the mantle from Arsene Wenger as being the Premier League's kind of go-to manager to speak eloquently and with some some common sense on these on these matters. Um, the interview he did with the, the Liverpool website and, and Liverpool TV on a, either Wednesday or Thursday this week about the um, the singing of uh, the Chelsea Rent Boy song at Billy Gilmore by Liverpool fans at Norwich, um, I thought was an absolutely excellent interview. Uh, it was far more powerful than anything that the football authorities did in response to the incident. Um, no change there then. Uh, I, I think he, he spoke with um, 
real clarity. I think the message will be heard loud and clear by by the vast majority of Liverpool fans. And look, let's, you know, it, it's not the vast majority of Liverpool fans that are going and, and singing those songs. We should we should start with that. Uh, and Klopp, I think, very very cleverly in terms of trying to make sure we appeal to the fans. Said, look, we, you know. We're Liverpool. We've got the best songbook of of any club in the country. We don't need to resort to singing these sorts of these sorts of um, you know songs with homophobic slurs in them. Uh, I thought what was disappointing was there was a a small group of Liverpool fans on on Twitter who who tried to suggest that oh no we weren't we weren't talking about rent boys in the sense of uh, of a homophobic slur it's just because he's on loan from chelsea so he's literally been rented <laughs> to norwich and i just thought oh, come oh dear yeah um, <laughs> talk about know, digging I, your own grave <laughs> exactly and i think you know again the overwhelming majority of liverpool fans i think has heard the message uh, loud and clear um i thought klopp did a fantastic job in, in getting out in front of the story and tackling it head on and basically saying to, to those supporters who were involved in that singing, that isn't representative of what Liverpool Football Club is in, in 2021. And it shouldn't be representative of, of what any football club is in 2021. And um, fans have to be really careful now. I mean, not being at, at games for 18 months, that they don't come back and immediately put themselves in situations. I mean, let's not even start with what happened in, in France over the weekend at the, um, the Marseille and Nice game where there was a a pitch invasion by Nice fans and attacked Marseille players and, you know, throwing things at, at Payet. I, I think, um, uh, I think George Sampalini did his own bit of attacking as well. I thought he was going to wade into that crowd. <laughs> yeah. You know, let, let, like it's great to have fans back at football, but let's be celebrating that for the right reasons and not having to talk about these sorts of stories, but well done to Jurgen Klopp, well done to Liverpool. I thought they got, right out in front of the story before it kind of, you know, was allowed to balloon even even further. So I think, you know, he deserves great credit for that. Just, just to, to, to finish off on this, because I think we, we've, we've covered it very well, um, th- that that chant, which is something that I've never liked because it's it, it's pointless. What's that got to do with football? Nothing. Um, it, and, like, it only gets wheeled out when we play Chelsea. So... When when Billy Gilmore's just trotting over to take a throw in or whatever, he's on loan from Chelsea. He's what eighteen, nineteen, yeah, it's, something like that. It's yeah. the kind of behaviour that we've criticised other fans for for years. Like when someone at Old Trafford goes to take a throw in, used to play for Liverpool. If they get a, a YSB chance, uh, we'll just shorten it to that, so we don't have to turn on the uh, yeah. explicit <laughs> facility. Um, you know, like why you know, like. So, so, so what he used to play for Liverpool. You know, I, I, yeah. I, I don't get it. I've never got it. Um, so yeah, um, it, it doesn't get sung in the background or anything. You know, it's not a common song. It's not a song that is sung every game. It is normally reserved for Chelsea games. And hopefully, Jurgen has nobbled this and we'll never hear it ever again because it was always a completely tasteless and pointless chant anyway. Um, apart from the fact that I'm very convinced that Norwich are going to win the championship twenty. 20- 223. Um, I, I would not really have much of a look at the football league, and, and we love it on this podcast. So, who, who's who's kind of like uh, blazing a trail? Who, who's caught your eye so far, and, and who do you fancy, Paul? I know you're you're a big fan of your promotions, uh, sorry, your your predictions in the yeah. top championship and beyond. I am. So I'm going to start. I'm going to start for League Two fans with them uh, this week, Dan, and I'm going to work my way up to the championship. Um, 
I think League Two is a really fascinating league this season. Um, I think the, the the already I think four games in the sort of shuffle in the league is is pretty much got the teams that I really fancy quite strongly up at the top, uh, with the exception of Salford, who uh, haven't won yet, and are third bottom, and so Gary Neville will prove yet again (laughs) that he follows all his advice that he gives every other club about sticking with managers, because I'm sure he will stick with his manager um, for a very long period, as he did with Graham Alexander last season. Anyway, um, moving on, I think that the the teams I fancied really strongly, Bradford, who... um, Derek Adams, who's got Plymouth and then last season more come out of that league previously, has taken the Bradford job. Um, a little bit worried about goals, but otherwise, other than sort of maybe a centre forward who can really hang your hat on, it's a very good squad of League Two players. Um, they've got 10 points from their first four, their second. I think they were kind of my big, big call to win it. Um, Forest Green atop, and, and the, the really interesting thing about that that people might not know, again, They've been there or thereabouts since since Mark Cooper brought them into the Football League. They've been in and around the playoff hunt pretty much every season. Um, I think they finished sixth last year again. So they're they're normally there or thereabouts. But they parted company with Cooper towards the end of last year when they had a little bit of a dodgy run. Um, And they've appointed over the summer uh, a a guy named Rob Edwards, um, who might not be a name that everybody's familiar with. He played... Uh, I think he might even have played in the Premier League for Wolves for a, for a year or two, but he, he spent quite a bit of time at Wolves in his career and, and playing in the Football League. He had a spell at Blackpool. Was he a crew lad? No, he's not, no. Um, he I think he was a Villa kid originally. Um, but he, yeah, he, he's, I think Wolves is probably where he's best known for. Um, but until uh, this summer when he was appointed as a Forest Green manager, he'd been... He'd been coaching England's under-16 team. So it was a really interesting appointment for Forest Green. I think it was a bit kind of, a bit out of left field. I think he had a little Spallers Wolves caretaker about seven, eight years ago when they were between managers. But really, his club experience is pretty limited. Um, but he's uh, been appointed in the summer and they've played for one for top of the league, 12 points, got off to a really good start. Um, so, you know, they're a team I fancied as well and, and, and definitely have got, got off to a quick start. And then the other one is Mansfield, who are currently fourth. Um, again, some of your listeners might not know, but but Nigel Clough is now the uh, manager of Mansfield. Um, and I think they'll be there or thereabouts as well in the shake-up at the end of the season. So the three that I really fancied in League One have, have all started well. Um the the other one I'm really interested in, just because it's literally down the road, is is Leighton Orient. They've only played three because they had a game called off for COVID, um, but uh, I think they're playing tonight actually uh, as well. Um, I'm going to try and get down to some games this year at, at Brisbane Road um, and see some live football. Uh, and uh, yeah, Orient are one that I'm definitely keeping an eye on. I think they could make a little playoff push. But but it was those three, Forest Green, Bradford and Mansfield, that I really fancied going in, and they've all had a very, very good start. So I think in, in League One, um, similar, and the, the two teams I really fancy, Sheffield Wednesday, you know, shouldn't be in this league. But then last time they came down, they seemed to quite like it because they stuck around for a few years. Um, Sheffield Wednesday are, are, are top. They've, they've won, I think, three of their first four. Um, 
you know, again, you you would expect Sheffield Wednesday at that level to to have a budget and resources uh, that that outstrips the teams they're playing against. Some people would tell you that had they not fallen foul of um, financial fair play, they would never have ended up in this league in the first place. But leaving that aside. Uh, They've got off to a good start. Darren Moore's a manager there, former former West Brom manager. I think they will they will get promoted. Um, Wickham have started extremely well, which is good to see. We've big fans of Gareth, Gareth Ainsworth and Wickham on this podcast. We we mentioned him a lot last season, and I was really sad that they went down from the championship on the final day because he made a hell of a fist to that league, given their resources. But then the other one is is Portsmouth, where the, the Cowley brothers are. Um, and again, I've mentioned before that I sort of managed against the Cowley brothers when they started out in their football management careers back at um, Concord Rangers in, in the Essex Senior League. Uh, and um, obviously a spell at Lincoln and then a much shorter spell at, at uh, Huddersfield, but have, have landed on their feet, I think, at, at Portsmouth. And they had a good little run when they first took over last season. They've started well as well. Portsmouth and, and Sheffield Wednesday are my two big fancies for, for League One. Um Interestingly, if we're reflecting on sort of the other end of the League One table, Crew, who again, listeners will know, I'm a, a, a Crew fan as well as an Arsenal fan, have, have not won a game yet, and we're in the bottom four, where we are joined by Charlton, and that is not something I think people would have expected. Uh, and then just above the the relegation line, I know it's very early to be talking about relegation lines, is Ipswich. And you don't have to go back too many years. Certainly the three of us will all recall during our university days, Charlton and Ipswich were two kind of pretty steady mid-table Premier League clubs and played relatively attractive football for um, for mid-table Premier League clubs. And Ipswich uh, even got into the UEFA Cup. Ipswich came up and had that great year where Marcus Stewart scored every week and made a UEFA Cup spot. And um, to now be looking at the bottom end of League One and seeing both of those clubs down there, it's... Um, We've talked before about some of the issues at Ipswich, and uh, yeah, still early days, obviously, but but both of those have not had the starts that they would have hoped to have had. Um, they would both expect themselves to be in and around that, that promotion shake-up, if not, probably not automatic for either of them, but but certainly in the in the chase for a playoff spot. Um, and then just the final one to mention, Dan, because it, uh, it's certainly close to the, the hearts in your household, but a really good start by Bolton, who, you know, back in the in the league after being promoted from League Two last year and, and I think unbeaten, aren't they? Two wins and two draws from their first four. So um, I think they'll be absolutely delighted at Bolton, the start they've made. Yeah, it's a good start. And they're certainly on my both teams to score a coupon every week at the moment. <laughs> Conversely, when Neil Lennon was manager and they had that terrible run where they didn't score for nine games, he was always on my both teams not to score. So, yeah, so I, I think you know I, we'll come back to these at the end of the season. But Sheffield Wednesday and Portsmouth are my are my automatic promotion tips. If I've if I've got to come up with one um, that's kind of playoffs and, and might might surprise people, I, I had Oxford in that category last year. I'm going to have Oxford again. Um, but I also think Wigan, who had a difficult season last season, um, seemed to have sorted the club out a bit behind the scenes, and I wouldn't be surprised to see Wigan have a good year. If if we move on then to the uh, the Championship, the league we all love, um, like, who, who do we fancy? That I have a feeling that yeah, your your local your um, local team from your childhoods um, 
Stoke, I think they're making a, a, a an ominous start. Should you not wish it to be promoted, it's ominous, obviously. Yeah, so the the championship is the league where I think my... I think those predictions I made for League 2 and League 1, I think they were all pretty much what everyone thought. You know, everyone fancies Bradford. Everyone fancies Sheffield Wednesday. Most people think Mansfield will go well. Most people think Portsmouth will go well. I probably haven't gone that far off the beaten track. My championship top two predictions were a bit more off the beaten track. One of them so much off the beaten track that they're currently bottom of the league with zero points. <laughs> um, but I just thought Chris Hutton might work his magic at Knott's Forest this year, and they might not, really surprise not, people. Not, not working, is it? Not Forest. Not working at all at the moment, and they're bottom of the league. They played four, lost four. They're struggling to score goals. So, yeah, that, that that's not gone so well. The other one, I think Queen's Park Rangers are going to have a really big season. Um, I, I good, just good think, manager though, Matt Watt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think Queen's Park Rangers, after a lot of years of kind of bobbing about in that division without really doing anything, you know, Mark Warburton's there. Uh, they've, I think, got a a more settled squad of players than they've had in a few years. It feels as though this is more a squad that's kind of been built rather than thrown together. If that makes sense, um, you know, they've got some. Some decent players in there. Uh, I, I'm I'm a fan of Stefan Johansson in, in midfield, who has been in a promotion team before, of course, at, at Fulham. So um, that they've got some talent at, at uh, Queens Park Rangers, and Chris Willock's made a good start to the season as well. So they are my um, they're my tip to to sort of upset the apple cart. I think QPR, and that one doesn't look too bad so far. And Knott's Forest, where maybe that one does look quite bad. <laughs> that, that one's not going to come in, I don't think. The others who were up there early on, you've mentioned Stoke. If we if we go back to sort of last Christmas, Stoke were absolutely flying until Kevin Campbell's son, um, whose first name has escaped my mind for a moment, got injured and suddenly they couldn't score a goal. But Stoke uh, have got off to a good start. I think they'll have a good season. I certainly think they'll be in at least the playoff chase. Bournemouth, I think, will go well. Scott Parker's gone there. They, they've still got some very talented players. Uh, you know, they've still got Solanke there, who should get them goals at this level. And then West Brom and Fulham, well, obviously, yes, they got relegated from the Premier League. They've both appointed good managers. I think Valen Ishmael did an unbelievable job at Barnsley last, last year. We commented on that, and he's taken the West Brom job. And Marco Silva, um, who... You don't have to go back too many years when everyone thought he was going to be the next big thing um, is now at Fulham. So it, no surprise that those two have started well. Conversely, Sheffield United have started the opposite of well. They need to be um, careful they don't do, double dip. Yeah, and only Nottingham Forest are below them at the moment. They've obviously sold some players, um, Sally Aaron Ramsdale to, to Arsenal last week. They got a lot of money back in for Ramsdale, but uh, they then proceeded to get bashed 4 0 that night at West Brom, which maybe suggested they might need to fork some of that money out on a new goalkeeper. Um, uh, but yeah, they've got off to a, a slow start. As of Swansea, who've been there or thereabouts lost in the playoffs the last two years, Steve Cooper um, seemed as though he was going to stay on for a third season, and then something clearly happened. I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but quite late in the day, I think preseason actually started when he then decided he wasn't going to stay on. Um, they brought Russell Martin in late in the day from uh, from MK Dons. Uh, they managed to get a win um, uh, at the 
I think on Friday night, wasn't it? They they um, beat Sheffield United. Uh, was it Sheffield United they beat? They, they they won on Friday night, definitely. I can't think who they beat now. Um, they drew 0-0 with something. Sheffield United earlier on in the season. They drew 0-0 with Sheffield United. Who did they beat on Friday night? Bristol City. Ah, they beat yeah. Bristol City 1-0 on Friday night. I watched that game. Bristol City were terrible. And I'll, I now remember the game very clearly. Bristol City were terrible. And I wonder if Nigel Pearson realises it's not 2013 anymore. Because he seems to have rebuilt the Leicester team that he got promoted to the Premier League eight years ago. Uh, and I don't know if he's aware, but when players get older, they don't always get better. Well, Mark Albrighton's not, busy, not, not too busy these days. They can get him back. Yeah, so I think Danny Simpson was in the squad, Matty James was in the squad, Andy King was in the squad. It is basically that Leicester side from, from you know, seven or eight years ago. I thought Bristol City looked really, really poor. So that was my takeaway from that game. Swansea probably are taking a step back from the last couple of years, but will find their way back, I think, as the season goes on, and it'll be fine, albeit probably not in the promotion chase. Bristol City, I thought, looked terrible. Um and they just kept throwing strikers on the pitch, despite the fact that the problem was they didn't get the ball to the strikers. So taking more midfielders off and putting more strikers on didn't seem to me to be a very sensible solution. But anyway, um, yeah, it didn't work for Bristol City. They were they were poor. Um, and I think they'll be in the sort of wrong end of the table when, when it comes down to it. Uh, uh, one, one thing you've not, not really covered, who are always going to be in the share cup for playoffs are... Uh, Cardiff because they're managed by Mick McCarthy and that's just what Mick McCarthy does despite what Ipswich fans tell you. Yeah, so obviously Cardiff and, and Middlesbrough similarly with, with Warnock still. Um, very experienced manager's been there, seen it, done it before. Decent Complained about players. it. But... Yeah, I, you know, I would expect the strength for Cardiff and Middlesbrough. We've both started okay without pulling up any trees. But I think what I would expect from them is in those the hard yards of the championship season, which is really November to January, when they, they play twice a week, almost every single week. That can catch teams out who are not used to that and who've got managers who may be not used to that. The, the championship is the most intense league in England. It, it is absolutely a slog. Um, and I think where you'll see the benefit of people like Mick McCarthy and, and Neil Warnock is in managing their teams in those periods in the middle of the season when you really have to slug your guts through through the league. Um, the likes of Russell Martin, younger manager, or Wayne Rooney at Derby maybe, not quite as kind of experienced at, at going through that. It'll be interesting to see how they how they cope with it. But um, But yeah, both of those teams will not be short of experience, Middlesbrough and Cardiff. Yeah, they, they they know what they're doing. They've got they've got old hands, um, but whatever doesn't happen for Middlesbrough will no doubt be the referee's fault. <laughs> but that's just Neil Warnock's way. Um, anything else that we want to, um, to to cover, gents? So I think we've had a a good route around um, the the week's football there without really talking about many results. Yeah, I, I've, I've mentioned just a couple of times, Dad, and I'll mention them again. I, I, I did think West Ham were really, really good last night. And that, I said last week when we were talking about teams who might make that sort of sixth to eighth, um, or fifth to eighth kind of uh, space in the table. I don't think last year was a, was a one-off at West Ham. I don't think it was a fluke. I don't think it was a flash in the pan. I think they're really well organised. They maybe don't have the deepest squad, and we'll, 
we'll have to see how that affects them when when Europe kicks in. But um, you know, it was an impressive. I know I know Leicester had a man sent off, but to beat Leicester four one, that doesn't happen too much these days. So you have to you have to really take your hat off to them. And I think Antonio became West Ham's all time leading goal scorer in Premier matches. He did, which yeah. I would that not was... have. Yeah, I would not have predicted that. That's a quiz question you wouldn't get, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 it is, definitely. Um, so, you know, give, give huge credit to West Ham. They've they've done great. Yeah, I think I think that's that's the only thing. They they sort of they you win the uh it's almost in spoon, isn't it, finishing six? Because you, you get those teams that don't have the squads that stretch to, to multiple fronts, right? Or four fronts essentially of league, domestic cups and, and Europe. Um, so I think that's going to be the the challenge because there isn't, you know, they have a good first eleven. You look through that team; it, it looks really good. There isn't a lot on the bench, and obviously they haven't managed to retain Lingard, who was a, you know, an extra dimension for them and a bit of a catalyst for their form in the second half of last season. But the fact that uh, you know Antonio started the season with a with a bang and they've, they've just sort of picked up where they left off is is really promising. Um, I think all, all I say with Antonio is my, my perception of him is he seems to score his goals in runs as a lot of those kind of mid-table strikers tend to. So it's if, if the goals dry up, you know, do they have enough? Um, or if he gets injured, you know, do they have enough to keep that going? I think that'll probably be the be the challenge with them. But good to see, a, you know, you know, none of us are particularly affiliated to West Ham, but it's always good to see, you know, other teams beyond the usual suspects um, sort of getting up there and, you know, sort of challenging the big boys and not being afraid to play good football. So, uh, you know, long, long may continue in, in that context. I think the other thing on Antonio Khan is he, he always seems to me as though before he scores a goal in a game, he misses an easier chance. <laughs> um, like once Antonio's missed a sitter, you know he's going to score. <laughs> that's that's my test with him. Um, and, and I think even last night he missed a good chance before he got his first goal, but it is a fantastic achievement for him to, to be West Ham's leading goal scorer in Premier League competition. I mean, it isn't that high a number. I think it's 40-something, but still, um, yeah, he, he's done it very well. I think it's fair to say the squad isn't maybe as deep as some of the others. O- on the Lingard thing, is that dead? Is that not happening? It, it sounds as though Solskjaer said he wants to keep him. Um exactly what he wants to keep him for i don't know maybe he entertains van der beek on the bench or something maybe they, maybe, maybe they play scrabble together i, I don't really know but uh he, i i think you know and I, whilst obviously it's good for us to have the depth i do feel a bit sorry for the lad because he, he really was a new lease of life for him last season um you know he obviously didn't quite make the uh the cut in the end for the euro squad but it's just good to see him you know enjoying his football and playing well and he seemed to really gel with that team um, mm. So I, I don't know. I think they, they seem reluctant to shell out what we've been asking. Um, so unless they come in, you know, I don't know when the don't know when the window slams shut uh, this summer. But unless they come 31st. in first, right? So unless they come up with something in the next week, yeah, looks like he's going to stay. Um, but I think we've seen this weird thing where, where where clubs do this in the summer, and then by January they let them go on loan again. It wouldn't at all surprise yeah. me if, if if the same thing, yeah, yeah. whether it's to West Ham or whatever, I don't know, but. You know, if he's barely played by December, you know, surely there'll be push from from him and his agents. They just let him go somewhere else for the second half because it's you know it's a waste otherwise if he's if he's not getting game time. You think with the likes of uh, you know Sancho coming in and stuff and retaining Cavani, like where you know where's he going to play? Like, mm. where, where where's his game time coming mm. from? I I think that's right, and and he's such a kind of infectious player as well. Maybe wrong word with the Kobe conversation <laughs> earlier, but he's he's such an infectious personality, um, uh, Jesse Lingard. Like he plays 
with great energy, with a smile on his face. He kind of to really enjoy his football. He's not the kind of player I can imagine. You know, some players, and I'm not going to name names, are happy being at Man United sitting on the bench and playing 10 games a season. Yeah. I don't see Jesse Lingard as that type. So I am surprised that United have not let him go. And I, I don't know what the price they've been asking West Ham for is. Um, I don't know if, if they're just... Arsenal apparently have asked Crystal Palace for 20 million for Eddie and Ketia. Unfortunately, Crystal Palace has seen Eddie and Ketia play. Uh, <laughs> although I do do that a little bit because they are still trying to buy him. Um, but um, you, you know what I mean? Maybe there's a price point there that, that's just a bit United need to come down a little bit on price uh, to make it affordable for West Ham. But I think it would be in everyone's best interest for him to go and, and go to West Ham and play football and be a key part of what they do. Um, as, as, as much as I'm sure he's, he's loved being a Manchester United player, having come through the ranks and whatever, he, he's a senior pro now. And I, and I think it's right that he goes and plays football. Now, just from what you see of him and you hear him speak, I imagine that's what he wants as well. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree, and yeah, like you say, he's he's you know he's he's 28 now, um, so you think he's probably got you know four years at the, at yeah. the real top in him. So yeah, he wants he wants to spend that time you know playing and starting every week, and he's he's good enough to you know for a for a decent Premier League side. So it does feel like we seem to have deliberately priced West Ham out of it um, in a sort of slightly peevish way for some unknown reason. Like I say, whether we'll relent you know in the next week or whether it'll end up happening in January, I don't know, but. Yeah, I think um, yeah, I think certainly in his interest to to get a move to to West Ham or or similar club of that type for sure. But I, we'll I predict that will be one of the late late moves. I think that'll happen. I think that'll happen on the thirty first. Yeah, um, it, it wouldn't surprise me, Dan, if 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 it if it can be revived late in the window. It just seems too sensible for everybody concerned. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and uh, exactly what David <laughs> Gold and David Sullivan don't want. Yeah, I, you know, I, it's um, look. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. But 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 to me, that just that's a bit of a no-brainer. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that um, West Ham's offer will get above 300 quid in a copy of Girly World, and <laughs> they'll, they'll sort it. I, I think that will be a late one. I think that will happen. Um, kind of like late on on the thirty first. Um, I would say Jim White will be screaming from the rooftops about it, but um, but he won't. But he he's, won't. He's gone. He's gone. Yeah, and and of course, the, the, every time I see the, the transfer deadline countdown on the, on Sky Sports News now, I start getting into a cold sweat because I'm actually in the process of moving house and I need to be on the out on the thirty first. <laughs> so that that can mean something else for you. Yeah, that countdown symbolizes you've got eight days to get. <laughs> And of course, um, I'm moving house whilst um, fulfilling a civic duty, which I shall not discuss, um, and grieving for my father and organising a funeral. It's been a been laugh and cry. Um, yeah, but... yeah, a, a difficult few days, Dan. Well, um, hopefully the weekend's football at least put a smile on your face for some time. Uh, I, it, it was nice, and um, we'll, we'll kind of wrap things up there. But uh, again, to, to go back to my dad you know like it was difficult to get through that first you'll never walk alone because yeah i i know it's a cliche about this that and the other but that song means something to a lot of people and yeah i, I i've led people to rest to that song and i will be doing the same again in a few weeks when yeah. i go it is my wish to be led to rest to you'll never walk alone so it, it means something it means a lot to liverpool fans 
and it's not just a, a Twitter slogan of why NWA. You know, it, it means something. And I, it, I know t- you... it took me about five years of Twitter existing, Dan, to work out that's what it was. I just kept thinking, what's this why NWA mean? Why do why people keep writing that? And then I realised it means you'll never walk away. It, 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 it does, yeah. Um, Tech speaker's not my forte. <laughs> no, neither is it. Yeah, is Paul, it it's, my... it's not a 1970s novelty pop song, if that's what you were worried about. <laughs> it's slightly more... <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, no, well, I, I can imagine it was, yeah, a sort of a, an emotional day on a number of levels for you, Dan, but, uh, yeah, like you say, and I, I hope that, uh, tonight's sort of done him, done him, done him proud, which I know is what, what you wanted as well. Um, I, I hope so, Paul, but, uh, sorry, Khan, I hope, I hope, I hope Khan, but what I, I can tell you is that he would not have been tuning into Barrow against Aston Villa like I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he would always accuse me of saying, he actually said to me, you would watch Tibet against Qatar if you could <laughs> and I, I would point out to him uh, or I can't talk to him in person anymore unfortunately but if it was a club equivalent of it I probably would international football if it's not a tournament no I wouldn't <laughs> well I think we can all we can all verify you on that one Dan <laughs> yeah um god bless you dad um yeah so thank you very much for tuning in everyone um this was in memory of my dad Stephen Thomas um, who is the reason I'm here talking about football? He always encouraged me to. Um, Paul, can thank you very much. It's been a, a very, very enjoyable show talking about some some big issues. Uh, we'll be back next week. There is a question mark above my head for that, not because I, I can't handle it, because I can, but because I don't know whether I'll. microphone but thank you very much gents thank you everyone for listening and we'll catch you again after a while